All right. I know. <laughs> Testing one. We are back. All right. Everybody take their seats here and at all the campuses. It's a great thing. Love this. And uh, I'm just going to ask my staff if they can make sure that somebody texts me how many are at each campus. So campus pastors or whoever's in charge of each of the campus. Thanks for helping. Text me. Text me. Yes. All right. And let's get that working out. Hopefully we're getting this to all the sites. Hey, I am thrilled today that uh, we have our assistant superintendent, Alton Garrison, with us. It is an amazing thing. Uh, I, I just, one of the things you may not know, uh, we are affiliated with the Assemblies of God, and uh, that's about 12,200 churches in the United States of America, and then uh, many more around the world. Matter of fact, uh, the largest church in the world that uh, John Bevere uh, referenced in one of his sermons uh, this weekend is an Assembly of God church, uh, 800 some thousand people uh, that go to that church. Imagine that. You just think about that. I think they church plant with 20,000. They're like, here, you got 20,000, go plant a new campus. So uh, how's that, Burnsville? Uh, anyways, uh, yeah. So uh, I'm just saying, did I say something wrong? I'm getting heckled. I want to be at Savage right now. I'm getting heckled here, but anyways, all right. Hey, uh, yeah, the staff's cheering me on. All right, thrilled. I, I heard uh, Alton Garrison uh, speak a lesson on leadership uh, down in Miami. We were there with Rich Wilkerson, and, and I loved it. I, I thought it was so good. I said, you have to come to Minnesota and do this, and we have a, a history together, and I said, you need to come to Minnesota, and he goes, please have it be summer. Please, please, <laughs> Yeah. and uh, so I said, we got something in August, so we wanted to have him here for our leadership night. And uh, tried for a weekend, and he was booked up for years in advance. So I said, let's do the leadership night. Love to have you here. And uh, he just has a special place in our family's heart. And uh, I just want to share this with you. Uh, my brother Rick, who is many times a sermon illustration, and uh, yeah, uh, <laughs> yes, that's true. Uh, it, he was away from the Lord. He was away from the Lord and living in Little Rock and was part of the Air Force. And uh, during the first Gulf War, uh, he found out that he was going to be deployed. He knew that we were going to war, that this was going to get serious, and he was being deployed. He was far away from God. And on a, a day in Little Rock, uh, Arkansas, he decided to go to a church and picked uh, Alton Garrison's church. Now, it's significant because that day was a snowstorm in Arkansas. Now, I know it's, it's not much for us. It was just a couple inches, maybe an inch, if that. But, you know, down south, that's going to shut a place down. But Rick was far away from God, and he said, I'm going to church. I have a four-wheel drive truck, and I'm going to make it there. He went to church, got there, and in a church that normally had about 1,500, so imagine an Apple Valley service just packed. Uh, in a church that was normally like that, about 100 people showed up that day. And so they thought, well, should we cancel church or not? Should we keep it going? And uh, Pastor Garrison was like, well, you know, 100 people showed up. We might as well at least do it for them, all right? So he goes and preaches the message for the 100 people and does it there. And it wasn't like live stream where, you know, he could know that people were watching, at least from home. There were 100 people there. And at the end of his message, he called for an altar call. And uh, he thought, surely, Lord, there's not a chance anyone is here that doesn't know Jesus. It's a snowstorm, you know. I mean, and, and, and if you don't know this, when you're a preacher, you start battling, should I do this? Is this me or not? And, and one of the things you don't want to do is 
do an altar call and not have anyone respond and then say, well, blessings on all those that are saved. I mean, you don't want to do that. You want to, you know, and he's arguing inside and, and he just feels like give the call. And uh, Rick was the only one that came forward. And in that whole church, he walked forward, knelt there, repented of his sins. The church prayed for him, welcomed him back into right relationship with Christ. He called my mom and dad bawling. I got my life back with Jesus. I've been in rebellion. I'm, I'm back. I'm 100%. And uh, since that day, I've just so strongly been just grateful. And I know my family has as well. And my mom came in and said, I just had to say thank you again right before service. And uh, it's just a thing. Never despise the day of small beginnings. Never look down on your life group of 10 people. Lives are being changed one at a time, one at a time, and one at a time. And now he's a deacon with a godly marriage with boys that he's raising and a daughter that he's adopted and raising. And just all that, just think of how his trajectory would have been different if a church was closed because of a snowstorm and if an altar call wasn't given. So this is somebody we love uh, because of what he's done for our family, what he does for our movement, what he's done in ministry, and I believe he has a word to share uh, for us today. So here, and I know it's awkward at the campuses, but I want you to do this anyways as a show of honor. I want you to clap your hands and welcome our assistant superintendent, Alton Garrison. Thank you. Love you. Love you, man. Give the glory to Jesus, amen. Wow, it's good to be here tonight. All this energy in the room, and I know all the campuses are feeling the same thing. Thank you, Rob. What a great leader God has given to you. This church is a vanguard church, and you are having an impact around the world, and particularly in the tribe that I'm a part of, the leadership team, the Assemblies of God. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for releasing him on occasions to go because that's you planting seed in other places. And so God will reward you for that. Thank you. And I, I tell you, I'm already, I'm already at home and I'm already blessed. And I really don't care if you like me or not. <laughs> because mom Kettling came and hugged my neck and said I'm special. So... <laughs> I was an evangelist after my Bible school days for 18 years. Uh, not very many of those left anymore in itinerant ministry because everything's changed. But that's, that's what I started out as. And then I became a pastor. I'd never pastored a church in my life. I was 39 years old. The only church I'd attended was my dad's church. My dad was an alcoholic drinking a fifth of whiskey a day, dropped out of school at the 10th grade. He was a wreck, totally undependable, totally addicted. And Jesus Christ intersected his life and in one split second saved him, delivered him from alcoholism, and radically changed his life. Just like that. In a few weeks, he was baptized in the Holy Spirit, and within just a few months, they appointed him pastor of a church before he had ever preached his first sermon. Now, I don't know if that's faith or the spirit of stupid. I'm just telling you, they don't do it that way anymore. In fact, I'm kind of a part of a team that creates a lot of hoops for people to jump through before they can be credentialed. 
But it was such a little church, they didn't figure he could mess it up. <laughs> Nobody there but his family when he started. And it was a little town called, are you ready for this? Sour Lake, Texas. In southeast Texas, a little oil-filled boom town that dried up and hardly anybody there. And it's a little bitty building. In fact, I went back, Johan and I went just a few months ago and preached an anniversary. I hadn't been back in probably 40 years. I actually preached on the stage in the school auditorium where I got my high school diploma. And I, I saw this little church. It had only seat 90. I mean, it was a little church. He didn't have an office. He didn't have a secretary. He didn't have an associate pastor. He didn't have a deacon board. We didn't even have a foyer in our church. <laughs> You're the in or out of our church. <laughs> but that's where I got saved and where I started my ministry. So I'm going to tell you that no matter what Satan tells you, no matter what your background is, no matter how unqualified you may think you are, God can use everybody in this room. He can use everybody that's watching on live stream. He can use all of us. I was eight years old, and Dad came to me and said, Son, you're our new pianist. I said, But Dad, I only know one song. He said, Don't worry, we'll sing it every week. <laughs> the lady that was the pianist, her husband was transferred out of town. She'd started teaching me gospel piano. I'd taken a little classical, but no gospel piano. She had only taught me one song, and she was gone. I wasn't any good. I was all they had. They didn't have anybody else. I was it. He said, if you'll sit there on that piano bench, after you play the song you know, you pray for God to teach you how to play those other songs that we're singing a cappella. You know what that means. That's a Latin word that means we don't have a piano player. <laughs> he said, God will teach you how to play those songs. Not true. <laughs> I mean, he might have done it for Andre Crouch or somebody, but my mother had a better idea. Take lessons and practice. <laughs> and so that's how I started and uh, played the piano in church, traveled. I was, you don't know this name perhaps, but some of you that have white hair might, well, Rick, you got white hair. You still wouldn't know. Uh, <laughs> I was the first crusade organist that Jimmy Swaggart ever hired in 1971. So I, that's how I started and I made 10 gospel recordings back in the 70s and 80s. And all that's passed now, you know. In fact, the other day, one of my friends emailed me and he says, uh, check on eBay. They're selling some of your old record albums. I mean, just the covers are something to behold. <laughs> you know, I had a burnt orange or powder blue Leisure suit, you know. I even had eight tracks for sale, you know. Record albums. There's kids in this room, they've never seen a record album. You show them a record album, they go, ooh, what a big CD. They said they're selling five, and I thought, well, eBay, I'm, you know, you're making it on eBay. That's pretty good. So I clicked on the link, opened up, sure enough, somebody was selling five of my old record albums. There were five different albums on, on eBay, and I was feeling, I was feeling pretty good until I looked at the opening bid. <laughs> 99 cents. And uh, not a piece, all five for 99 cents. <laughs> I'm just telling you if, you, if you can take a person's talent and put it on eBay for under a buck, ego is not my issue. 
I need some encouragement tonight, so y'all going to have to help. I need to feel a little love in this room, I'm telling you. So I became a pastor, and I, I, I had no experience. My dad's church, he was my mentor. So I'm trying to say that we're never too old to learn. 39 years old, I'd preach, and I knew about altar calls and stuff like that, but I didn't know anything about, well, I never dedicated a baby. That's a sacerdotal duty you're supposed to know how to do. I never baptized anybody. I, 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 I never actually planned and scripted a funeral. I eulogized a couple people, but never done that. I'd never done but one wedding. I don't know if it counted. It was out in the park. <laughs> I, I, I know it didn't last, but I don't think it was my fault. <laughs> I'd never conducted a board meeting. I, 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 you, you understand what I'm trying to say? So no matter what God's calling you to do, you can do stuff. Because he will equip you to do stuff. Somebody said, well, I'm unqualified. Satan will drag up all the past stuff you've ever done. I'm just telling you, the Bible is full of nobodies that God made somebodies out of. Moses stuttered. That's not a great leadership gift. Hosea's wife was a prostitute. That won't look good on your resume. <laughs> Gideon doubted, Thomas doubted, think about it. Elijah, the great prophet of Mount Carmel, burned out, <laughs> hiding in a cave, afraid of Jezebel. Peter was afraid of death, that, that's not good. Lazarus was dead, that'll hinder your ministry. <laughs> <laughs> Moses was a murderer, Paul was a murderer, think about it. Jeremiah, the great prophet. Depressed and suicidal. If he'd been living today, he'd be trying to find Dr. Phil, trying to pop a little Prozac. I mean, he was always depressed. I've been reading that in my devotionals. He, he was always beat up, down in a cistern, depressed. Peter had a short fuse. Paul had a short fuse. Moses had a short fuse. I've turned, determined one thing. God can hit good licks with crooked sticks. <laughs> so if Dad could make it, I went back to that little anniversary and preached in that little church. There's still seats only 90. It was packed that morning. But I heard testimony after testimony after testimony after testimony of people's lives that were changed because of his faithfulness. And I stand on his shoulders today. I'm not qualified to be here. I've only pastored one church. There's a lot of stuff I don't know. You guys know a lot of stuff because you've been through a lot of stuff. But tonight we're going to talk about some things that maybe, if you only get one good thing out of it, you hadn't wasted your time. <laughs> You've already laughed a little bit, had a little fun. Somebody called me the other day after I was, well, they just walked up when I was telling this story about my one song I knew, and they wanted to know, you still just know one song? I said, no, I've learned a couple of more. So uh, I, I thought I'd, I'd play one, just one. Now, now, wait a minute. I need to lower your level of expectation. But uh, there's not 88 keys here. That's the problem. So I, won't, I can't be responsible. This is a song that... Uh, that uh, some people think it's just a patriotic song, but uh, it really is. A, it's a renewal song. 
And so what we're talking about tonight is that we have to be people of truth. And we have to understand the value of truth and how that truth is dispensed. If, if David could play away the evil spirits of Saul on a harp, all music, regardless of the style, whether you like it or not, it may have value. So I thought I'd just, I won't play long. If you don't like it, it'll be done in about three minutes. A little more volume. How about two dollars? <laughs> I just kidding. Oh, I've already run my clock down. Let's open your notes up and let's fill in some blanks. I promised there the tech people back there I would not miss a blank. I'm not going to give equal time to each blank because there are things that I really want to kind of bore down on. But we're going to talk about leadership tonight. I know that's kind of an overworked phrase and everybody talks about it, but there are leadership principles that are transferable. And many of them that are taught in the secular realm come right out of the Bible. So I'm going to talk about, first of all, leading from a biblical perspective. Effective leadership 
in our context must capture a vision for God's mission. Effective leadership must function under the sovereignty of God. An understanding of leadership must be founded in the certainty of the Word of God and its authority. Now, that's the biblical part. Let me talk about the empowerment part that is tied to that, but it is mainly the Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, there are only three ministries that were anointed. Ministry of the priest, the ministry of the prophet, ministry of the king. Now, there were sporadic anointings on individuals, situations, but three ministries, the priest, the prophet, and the king. They were anointed to, first of all, the prophet to reveal God, to reveal God. And the priest was anointed to reconcile mankind. And the king was anointed to rule. And Colossians 1.27 says, Christ, the anointed one, in you, the hope of glory. So the very same way Jesus was anointed to be priest, prophet, and king, you're anointed. Now, now, now not always foretelling. I'm not saying everybody here has got to say what's going to happen next Thursday. But the prophetic utterance can also be foretelling. And you reveal God to this generation by what you say and how you act. Your declarations and your deeds. Now, now the, the priest was anointed to redeem mankind, so we can't save anybody. That's understandable. But we do have the ministry of reconciliation. And when Ephesians chapter 1 says, Jesus, all authority and power was placed under his feet. In chapter 2, verse 6 of Ephesians, it says, we're elevated to set in heavenly places with him. So everything that's under the feet of Jesus is under your feet as well. So we're not talking about your own ability. Now we're talking about the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, if you think of it like electricity, is generic in its flow Electricity is generic in its flow, but specific in its output. So if you flow electricity through a transformer into your house, whatever it connects to is what it empowers. If you flow it into a heater, you get. If you flow it into an air conditioner, you get. If you flow it into a TV, you get. If you flow it into a whatever, piano, I mean, it doesn't matter. So it's generic in its flow. Specific in its output. The reason this is important is that everybody listening, watching me right now, God has gifted you. Romans chapter 12, we'll talk about this in the morning. Everybody has different gifts. So we're not all wired the same. Some are introverted. Some are extroverted. Some are more uh, outdoorsy. Some are more in. Some like to work with their hands. Some have the gift of mercy. Some have the gift of teaching. Some have the gift of hospitality. Some have the gift of leadership. When the Holy Spirit empowers you, it connects with your gift and enhances your capacity. So it's generic in his flow and specific in his output. Does that make sense? So you're not here tonight just to learn something to fill in a blank. You're here tonight to realize that whatever God has equipped you to do, He has given you a special power. Now, let's look at some of the functions of leadership. We're to function with the same anointing as Jesus. See, a lot of people don't understand this Holy Spirit. They think it's spooky, ethereal. Let me tell you, we're not talking about Casper the ghost here. 
He's not a dove. He's not a wind, not fire. He purifies like fire. He has force like wind. But he's God. Jesus went away. And he sent the Holy Spirit. He's the God who stayed. God's in heaven. Jesus at his right hand. The Holy Spirit is the expression of God that you sense. Leadership is a product of community. So we defer one to another based upon how we are wired. Does that make sense? Now, you have a lead pastor. You have a vision and mission and values. But other than that, you have to know it's a product of community. Leadership is multiple and shared. And leadership blends spirit and strategy. Leadership blends spirit and strategy. Because a lot of people think, well, (laughs) it's all spirit. And they'll go, but but, but, but what about strategy? Well, it's all strategy. No, no, no. It's not either or. It's both and. So it's like every train needs to run on two tracks or it's going to fall off. Every river needs two banks. You're going to have a flood. So you have spirit and strategy. It's like the Son of God, the Savior. One is the experience of God. The other is the expertise of God. One is the system of God. One is the Son of God. One is the love of God. The other is the law of God. You need both. Very important principle to know. The man who fears God will avoid all extremes, Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 18 says. So, if we're going to talk about spiritual, biblical leadership, the first person you've got to learn to lead before you lead others is yourself. I'm not going to spend a lot of time. I'm just going to tell you that 300 leaders have been identified in the Bible. Only 25% of them ended well. So, be careful. <laughs> I'm saying that really sincerely. 75 out of 300, that's all that ended well in the Scriptures. And We have too many people today that have lowered the bar of commitment And they've paid the price because they have had this special power, but they didn't have the character to back it up. Their character could not accommodate their gift. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, 27, I discipline my body, bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. Now, if you're going to be a 360 Leader, you got to lead laterally. You got to lead upwardly. Laterally is the part that is leading peers. That's relational leading. Upwardly, that's when you're leading from the second chair or the middle of the pack. And then you've got to learn to lead downwardly. That means you have to lead people, and that's when a lot of people really like that because they are great with people but shallow spiritually or they're great with God and lousy with people. You can't, we don't need dictators. Dictatorship is very easy. It's bloody, but it's easy. Everybody disagrees with you, just cut their head off. (laughs) So we'd like to all move together, together. So you have to learn that, and then you have to learn to lead inwardly, and that's your own personal 
daily walk with God. Now, these are all lessons that you could spend off and teach an hour on each one of them. I just don't have that time, but I want you to have the blanks filled in. To lead yourself, here's just a few principles that I'll give to you. Number one, you have to be consistent with personal growth. Personal growth. You teach what you know, you reproduce who you are. You teach what you know, you reproduce who you are. There are books written about it. Realize, number two, character is more important than skill. Character is more important than skill. If you're going to lead yourself, you've got to learn to give up your rights and assume your responsibilities. Now, in your notes, I've given you an, a pyramid, like a leadership pyramid. Everybody got it there? Okay, I've put some very generic nomenclature in there. Turn, do you have, it, you have a blank sheet on the back side of one of your... I want you to draw yourself a big leadership pyramid, a big one. I want you to write on the bottom the same word I have on the one in your notes, rights. We're going to take this down to a little bit more pragmatic viewpoint tonight. When you look at this leadership pyramid... The bottom of the pyramid is the longest line that could be drawn in that pyramid, right? That is the maximum of your rights. As you start up that leadership pyramid, go about just a little bit like that and put a circle and draw your line across. And let's put there the word uh, greeter greeter. So once you become a greeter, that's hospitality. That's a ministry of this church, right? You no longer represent yourself now. You are now representing this church and you're an extension of Pastor Rob. So you have shortened your rights. When you are at the bottom you can exercise rights. It may not be admirable. It may not be desirable. You can sit in the audience and you can pick on the lights. You can pick on the sound. You can pick on this music. You can, you can say anything you want to say. You can frown. You can not participate. You can choose to participate. You can do whatever you want to. You have your rights. Once you start up that leadership pyramid, your rights begin to diminish. So when you got that little badge on and you're out there, you no longer can represent yourself. So when they come in, you say, we, you got to say, this is the day the Lord hath made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. Come on in. You're going to hear the greatest worship today you've ever heard. Pastor Rob's going to preach the greatest message you've ever heard. We got the greatest people you ever heard. You got to do all, you got to smile. You got to be hugging people. And you got to, you say, well, I don't feel that way. Okay. Take your little badge off. Go sit down and if you want your rights, restored. I'm just trying to be a blessing. I know it's how I pray. Does that make sense? Okay. So, so draw you in a little circle and go up one more. Let's just say a worship team and you could put anybody there, but let's put a worship team. Now you not only got to say the right things, you got to look the right way. 
You can't have people in the worship team. They can. Well, I got a headache. You just don't know where I've been this week. I had so many pressures. I just can't get up there. I can't worship. I can't do that. If you need ministry that you need to be ministered to, take your badge off, sit down, and let us minister to you. Because you need to come and get ministered to. So we have no problem with that. But at some point, you have to be giving up your rights and right up there where you saw it, responsibilities, picking up your responsibilities. Okay, then, what other kind of leader? Let's say some kind of teacher teaching boys, teaching girls, teaching that. Then, then the Bible even says you're held to a higher standard, right? And then you, let's go on up there and you, you get in the leadership team. So let's say you're an elder and your line gets longer. And let's say now you're part of the staff and your line gets longer. And then you're part of the team that's leading the, the preaching and then it gets longer. And, and pretty soon, it's not fair. You could go to heaven doing some of the things down here. There's a difference between discipleship and leadership. Big difference. Discipleship, you fall off the wagon, we dust you off, pray for you, love on you, get you back on the wagon. Leadership, if you've got a character flaw, we don't have time. We don't want you replicating that. You either get right with God or move on. I'm not paid to say this, okay? And I may not ever get back here. I'm just saying, <laughs> when you give up your rights, you give up the right to be unforgiving. You don't have an option. We're Christians. We got to work it out. We, we're not the group that puts explosives to our chest and blows up everybody. You don't have an option. Let me tell you. The chances of you having your feelings hurt at this church? 120%. Because we're volunteers, most of us. Why do people act that way in church? Because they can. They act that way on the job, they get fired. Act that way in school, they get expelled. Act that way in a marriage, they get a frying pan upside their head. They come to church. They can just regurgitate stuff. I had a lady one time. She's just always negative about everything. Yang, 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 yang. She had that little tone, you know, just kind of, just irritating. <laughs> Finally, one time I called her and I said, you know, I don't even know if you realize what's happening, what you feel. Well, pastor, don't you want me to be honest? I said, you know, I prefer you be quiet. <laughs> I'm just saying now, not everybody's ready for this, but they told me you were leaders. <laughs> you give up the right to be critical. I'm not saying you don't have an opinion, but there's a right way and a wrong way to do that opinion. You've got to give up the right to be reactionary. You've got to give up the right to be disloyal. You've got to give up the right to be moody. He said, well, it's not fair. If you want fair, go sell insurance. <laughs> you got to give up the right to be disloyal. You got to give up the right to be a whiner. You got to give up the right to be lazy. You got to give up the right to be vindictive. You got to give, you got to even give up the right to be right. <laughs> when the body decides, you got to walk out like you agreed with it. Anything else is disloyalty. 
We limit our options out of love because we know we should and we want to. Leaders, number three, bring change. Now, everybody likes change unless it's happening to them. I know, everybody will say they like change. I don't like it when it has to do with me. I could tell you story after story of times I didn't like it. I got a video. Now, you've conquered the issues that this video talks about. I'm just telling you that soon as you get one change perfected, made, and you live with it, there'll be another one come down the line that you'll get challenged again. So this video just kind of shows you uh, how difficult it is to make change. Roll it. How did all this happen? Well, I guess it all began a few months ago. The messages were great. The pastor was great. Everything was great. It was all so wonderful back then. None of us, absolutely none of us, had any idea that this could happen. I always knew this was going to happen. People aren't always what they appear to be. It happened while our pastor was out of town, attending a conference. That's usually when these things happen. And I don't mind is the devil's playground. When he returned, we could tell that there was something different about him. He was different. So different. He tried real hard to conceal his transgression. So I marched right into pastor's office and made him tell me exactly what happened. Our pastor finally broke down and confessed the matter to Faye, our church matriarch, on the condition that she tell no one. I immediately notified the prayer chain. I was shocked to hear what Pastor had said. You read about this thing happening elsewhere, but you never think it's going to happen to your church, to your pastor? At first I couldn't believe it. I said, no, no, Pastor would never do something like that. But the very next week in front of the whole congregation, he admitted it. They're in a hotel room, free from all the people and duties that usually hold him accountable. Our pastor decided to do something that would forever change the way that he is seen and remembered by this congregation. He... He... He decided to change... Change? Change our church! I mean, you think you know somebody, and then this... We trusted him. We thought he was one of us. The first change he wanted to make was to update our musical style. As the organist, the pianist, and the choir director for the past 13 years, I wasn't quite sure how to take that. So I stood right up and told him, if the organ was good enough for the apostles, then it is good enough for us. He wanted to use fewer hymns and more praise and worship songs. So what in the heck is wrong with the old rugged cross? I love the old rugged cross. We hardly ever used our hymnals anymore. And we had to learn a bunch of new songs that they put up on the screens with a... a... Movie projector! Right in the middle of our sanctuary! The following week, a new instrument arrived on stage. A guitar. A guitar. A guitar! So I said, what's next? Drums? A few weeks later, the drums arrived. Along with an electrical guitar and something called a bass 
The sacred ground where my wife and I exchanged our wedding vows is covered with wires and amps and speakers and various other implements of rock and roll devilry. And the music they started playing was sort of loud. 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 Louder than usual. I had to shut off my hearing aid just to keep from wetting myself. This is what happens when you change things. But that's not all that he wanted to change. The pastor also wanted to change our service times. It was going to make me late for the Denny's Brent special. Start using drama. None of the scripts had any apostles in them. And start a small group ministry. Sounded like some kind of free love hippie cult to me. But none of these changes were as radical and devastating as what pastor suggested next. A slow but definite phasing out of the choir. That's when we realized that pastor was possessed by a demon. Get thee behind me, Satan! But I love the choir. My wife is in the choir. My entire family is in the choir. Word of this somehow reached the choir during their weekly potluck fellowship in the room that's adjacent to the pastor's study. The response was swift and frightful. It involved many handfuls of fast-moving room-temperature food. The pastor escaped with his life but none of us have seen him since. All I wanted to do was make a few changes. I had no idea it would end like this. Now all the instruments are gone, and the service times are back to normal, and the choir is still singing on weekends. And there's just one thing that's missing. I'm preaching every weekend until we find a suitable replacement. You know, someone who will toe the line. Yeah, we tried that church out a few times. The first week was great. Yeah, we loved the music. The pastor was funny, and, um, and what he said, it made a lot of sense. When we went back the next week with some friends, things were not the same. Yeah, the music and the speaker were completely different, and it was kind of, well... well let's just say none of us connected with the service. Yeah. <laughs> now that the scandal is over, we finally have our church back to normal. Yes, sir. We are back to normal. Exactly the way God intended us to be. I apologize for that little old lady saying that about her hearing aid, but <laughs> <laughs> leaders bring change. Uh, Uncontrolled change equals chaos. Managed change equals leadership. Trust me, all growth results in change. But not all change results in growth. Why do people resist change? I don't think I have any blanks there for you. Loss of security. Threatened personal status or personal positions, implied criticism of the past, additional work. Some people think it's unnecessary, not helpful. I found out that uh, not everybody resists change. Some people are innovators. They really want change to happen. So I, here's some percentages. They may vary. There may be some people who would challenge this, but this kind of gives you an overview 
the innovators are about 7%. Should be in a little bit of better sequence down, but that's, I think you'll get it. 7% innovators. Early adopters, about 15%. Show me is 30%. So you can see right there that uh, about 52% of most any crowd dynamic will accept change pretty easily. Then another 38%, if you explain it to them well enough, they'll get it. But then there's a group of maybe 10% that never will. And so one of the things we have to understand as we grow, as we change, as we move, some people that we love dearly may not stay with us. And you have to understand that maybe that's just part of the sociological change that occurs. We don't want to lose anybody. We don't want to. Uh, we were getting ready to build a new church and move. I preached a sermon on not one hoof left behind, where Moses, you know, Pharaoh said, go out and sacrifice, come back, and then take the men, leave the women and children behind. And then he said, take the women and children, but leave the cattle and the... I preached on not one hoof. We want to go across Jordan and we want everybody to go, not one hoof left behind. But, I said, I love you, but if you don't go, you're not going to stop us. So that's, that's tough. Here's some reactions uh, to people, to resistance when they, they don't like change. Don't do it this way. Even, I, I don't, whether you're leading a small group or whether you're leading a larger group, no matter if it's your class or your small group, if you take the posture that the opposition is personal and you, res, you just throw down the gauntlet and threaten to resign, you haven't solved the issue. You could forcibly impose the chain in spite, change in spite of resistance, and that would be manipulative. You can keep positive yourself to the resistance and provide leadership. Because I, I, I don't really think all resistance is bad. But here's how, let, me, let me talk to you about what do you do if you sincerely are not in agreement with something that's happening. I have a little saying that I really believe. Public loyalty equals private leverage. Public loyalty equals private leverage. So don't sideswipe. Don't come out of nowhere. Don't surprise leadership with a disloyal statement in a public meeting unless you've gone to them privately and said, do I have permission? I just want to, I love you. I just want to talk about this issue. Public loyalty equals private leadership. Express understanding for the opposite view. It's all right. People don't always have to have their way, but they want to have their way considered. So sometimes they haven't dug in completely. Maybe you want to admit strength in the other person's position. But I've come to the feeling that if you evaluate your objections, you explain it, then you maybe have to move on. But I have had a few times, very few, when the opposition was so intense that I had to shift into neutral for a while. Just shift into neutral. So if you're not really understanding their heart, you're not leading them. I, I'm not going to rehash John Cotter's book, but John Cotter wrote a book called Leading Change. And, and I've given you the eight stage process for change the first four are 
very important. We call it that establishing a sense of urgency. That's building a burning platform. Nehemiah never could get them involved in building the wall until they got dissatisfied with the rubble. You got to decide how bad it is before you can decide how much effort you're going to put into the change. Then you create a guiding coalition. We call it the meeting before the meeting. The meeting before the meeting is much more important and preferable to the meeting after the meeting. Because the meeting after the meeting is that they're trying to undo what you did. The meeting before the meeting, you're trying to get people to understand so you'll have support. Developing a vision and a strategy is very important. Communicate. But I think that this grid that's in your notes is very, very helpful. If you look at this grid, there are these components that are necessary for successful change. You need vision, values, communication, skills, resources, action plan equals successful change. You can see the blacked out box. If vision is absent, if vision is absent, you have values, communication, skills, resource, and action. There is confusion and chaos. If values are absent, there's conflict and apathy. If, and you go down the line. Look at it. Each one has a consequence. If communication is absent, you have misunderstanding. If skills are absent, you have anxiety and insecurity. If they have a lack of resources, you have frustration level that keeps growing. If there's no action plan, you have erratic change at best, usually false starts. They never get going. Very important. That's a grid you can use in your business. That's a grid you can use at church. That's a grid you can use at a class. That's a grid you can lose any, use anywhere. This is effective change. It takes time to lead people along that journey. Leaders understand timing and influence. They understand timing and influence. Let me close with this uh, leadership ladder. This is uh, John Maxwell teaching in his first book. I think it was his actual, I think it was his dissertation for his doctor, Developing the Leader Within You. I never saw this, but when I became a pastor, I took the pastorate of a church that had been plateaued for 35 years. Now, they tell you that the longer an organization or a church has plateaued, the harder it is to move it off that plateau. So, 35 years, they'd never been under 450 in average attendance. They'd never been over 600. Now, back in the 50s, a church of 500 was a good church. They were very missional with regard to foreign missions. But they were very suspicious of anybody new in the community. Because they had seen them. They'd lived there a long time. And they thought, well, they've come. They were here 10 years ago. And they didn't stay. Or whatever. One guy said to a second guy about a third guy. And the youth pastor overheard it. I don't know if this third guy. They were talking about this third guy. I don't know if he's going to stay with us or not. He's only been here 10 years. So they had become pretty inward focused, right? So when I got there, my predecessor had been pastor 12 months. 
His predecessor had been pastor 36 months. And his predecessor had been pastor 60 months. And there had been long months, maybe seven to nine months interim between each one. So here's 60 months, five years. 36 months, three years. 12 months, one year. And the guy who's never pastored. That's not a comforting trend line. (laughs) The guy that was preceding me had seen a church grow from about 90 to 1,000. But he was the papa, you know. And he kind of, what he said, it went. They had trust in him. They had a lot, he had a lot of credibility. He only moved two and a half hours from his previous church, Memphis, Tennessee, to the church in Little Rock. He continually talked about where he was. His wife got her hair done over there. The kids went back over there. They always went back over there. They always talked about how good it was there. That didn't help them where they were. The guy that was there three years purchased new property to move the church out of a neighborhood where the church had always been. It passed by one vote. He didn't survive, even though it passed. My predecessor never liked the property that they had purchased. So he spent one year looking for new property. But by now, the people who didn't like the property liked the property, and they didn't like the new guy for not liking it. (laughs) (laughs) Then there were two family units in the church that weren't speaking to each other. One was a deacon, and one was the church secretary. And one was, that that was the one family. And the other family was the the associate pastor that had been there with six other senior pastors. And his wife taught the largest Sunday school class. And his sister-in-law had the library. And his brother had been on the board 42 years. And his nephew led the music. And I, who have never pastored in my life, walk into that. So I said to Johanna, I don't know exactly what to do. They came to me and they said, did you come to build us a new church? I said, no. (laughs) I'm an evangelist. I have never built a birdcage. I don't know anybody (laughs) building a church. (laughs) I just knew that it cost every other pastor before me their job. So I wouldn't about it. I said, well, I came to have church. So I said to her, we're pretty friendly people. So first of all, we're going to be friendly We're going to love these people. We're not going to talk about where we could have been. We're not going to talk about where we have been. We're not going to talk about anything. We're going to drive a stake, and here's where we are, number one. Number two, I'm looking for high-visibility projects that are non-controversial. I love to raise money, so I raise money for a new sound system. I raise money for a new bus, I mean, a van for the youth. I raise money for a new people mover for the senior citizens. We put a new nine-foot grand in. We, my wife loves to clean stuff. She had two guys. They were senior retired guys, Amos and Sam, and they went through there like, like you know, a whirlwind. They, everything that wasn't nailed down, they threw away. They cleaned, they painted, they, they, and they had all this stuff, and I mean, pretty soon stuff began to happen. Their lives began to change. Then I found this teaching. Let me go through it quickly because I think I backed into it accidentally. And it works. Number one, the lowest level is position. You are there because of your job description and your title. You see that? Just put position. 
I don't know if you can put it on the, if it's written up there or not. There should be a way to click into each deal. It didn't seem to work, but it's supposed to click into each one. So you can, you, it, it, it'll, it should be a, a presentation uh, where you'll position and then it'll be rights. So take the first line and it'll be rights and then position. And you are there and the only authority you have is your title and your job description. You stay there very long and the turnover rate gets high and the morale gets low. Second level is your permission level, and that's where you begin to develop relationships. Now people follow you not because they have to, they follow you because they want to. They follow you beyond your stated authority. This makes ministry fun and joyful. But caution, if you stay there too long, the highly motivated people will get restless because they are not into holding hands and singing kumbaya forever. They want to do stuff. They want to fix stuff. They want to build stuff. So you got the first level, that's your rights. The second level, that's your relationship. The third level, that's your production level. That's where you start seeing results. We got there, new van, new people mover, new piano, new, you see what I'm saying? New paint, new smell, new stuff. So now they're saying, you know what? This looks good. This is better than what we had. Better than what we had. So you're at the production level. That's where you see results. That's where they begin to sense some sense of success. That's where they start giving you chips. See, when you become the leader of whatever... You get some chips, like three coins or four. If you have a success, they give you one. You have a failure, they take two away. <laughs> Not fair. It's just the way it is. But you can't make change until you have change. It takes sometimes three to five years to get to those levels. Production. And the next one is personal development. That's where your teaching and your life example is impacting people up close. And what they have learned from you is revolutionizing their life. Then there's a sense of loyalty that even though they get their feelings hurt sometimes. See, if you stay around here long enough, trust me, somebody will ding your door, somebody will kick your cat, and somebody will sit in your spot. It's just going to happen. <laughs> But if you have become something and your character's been built and you've got this knowledge, then suddenly there's a, there's a sense of belonging and loyalty that won't be broken by somebody getting their feelings hurt. They didn't talk to me. They didn't shake my hand. They didn't do that. They have a vision bigger. The final level is called the personhood level. And that's the respect level. That's what we call the Billy Graham level. You probably won't get there. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> it takes a long time to get there is what I've tried to say. So these are steps that when I became the district superintendent after I was the pastor, I went over to the district and I had 426 churches to lead. I did this same thing as a district superintendent. It was harder. My relationship level, in the first seven months, I cycled through the district and visited every, had 17 different sections. I went through every section three times in seven months. I raised $100,000 for 
for what I call a district resource fund to give to the people instead of them giving to us. If they had a need, if they needed a book, I'd send books to everybody to read. If a pastor got voted out, I would send him $1,000 and a letter. If a presbyter or one of our leaders, sectional leaders, saw that there was a family that had a need, if a, if a, if a lady needed a new dress, if kids needed shoes, I would, I would, if they needed to pay the light bill at the church, I would send them money. If it was qualified, I'd send it. I took them on field trips. I took 73 to California to hang out. We rode down Rodeo Drive. We went to the Dream Center. We went to the Roots of Pentecost Tour. We, hunt, we built relationships. We invested. I had three cohorts going at once. I had a teaching going every month. To the, at some point, they're saying, wow. They're not just asking to take. They're investing in us. And that's that loyalty. That occurs. Leaders see first. They see farther out than anybody else. They see comprehensively. And they see completely. May God bless your leadership. Is my prayer tonight. Amen. Man. Rich stuff, rich stuff. I could hear the amens around me, people talking, and oh, that's good. And I was following on Instagram and Twitter and watching everybody putting it out there. Lots of great, great, great stuff, great stuff. And I don't know if you caught it, he said the teaching tomorrow morning. Did anybody catch that? He's going to teach our staff tomorrow. How many want us to record it so it's available online? Yeah, I thought so. You're like, wait a minute, we're coming back. All right, so we'll do that and make that available so that you can get in on that. You may not know this, but we have a monthly staff teaching where we do this in all staff. All of our campuses get together. We have teaching, we have worship, we have prayer and intercession, and then uh, we have a, a time where we celebrate with lunch, and so uh, we'll capture that teaching. But loved it, absolutely loved that you came, uh, loved that we're connected. Uh, if we can get you back again, we want to hear more. And, uh, and uh, I know there was so much good there, so much good. So I will say goodbye to all the campuses that are watching online. You're going to go to live worship there. Uh, one church, multiple locations. I love what God is doing through this. I got the total, over 400 adult leaders plus children on top of that. Uh, that's the power of multi-site, being able to do that. And, uh, and then many more watching online. So love all of our campuses. Uh, worship, let's just intercede. And uh, if you didn't hear this, hold on, don't cut out yet. When we launch a new campus, I felt God telling me that whenever we do that, we're going to do 54321 launch. I want you to hear this. Uh, we're launching Burnsville. So on September 4th, we're going to start five days of prayer and intercession. So it's going to go 54321, praying for Burnsville. So mark that down, September 4th, and it's 54321, and then launch. We pray on launch day. So let's be praying for our new campus as it gets started, and I want all the campuses. All right, now you can go and worship and uh, just draw into God's presence, all right? Here, let's all stand. It's a time to worship the Lord, and I believe that the teaching is just... Sometimes we have worship that opens our heart to teaching, and then we have something like tonight where teaching just opens our heart up for worship. You need a way to express to God how thankful you are for what He's done and what He's done in you, what He's going to do in you. Some of you need to worship God like you never worshiped Him before because 
You know, your family was lost and terrible, and you can relate to the testimony, and you're just like, God broke in. God broke in. He needed to worship Him and thank Him. It's a place to just worship the Lord. Somebody could grab this. If You could worship the Lord, and you can uh, kneel. You can lay down. You can walk around. You can just do whatever you need to do to worship the Lord. We, we just trust. This is all believers here, and we just want you to express your praise and worship, to just draw into the presence of God. Draw into the, I know when I'm here with people that don't know Jesus, uh, my neighbors or somebody, I'm always kind of thinking like, all right, I hope it stays relatively normal, all right? But, but man, it's, we just know that everybody's a believer here, so just let's go for it. Press in, worship, raise your hand. Take, if you want to kneel, whatever it is, let's worship the Lord, all right? Let's go for it. Can we just clap our hands in praise to our God, honoring Him in this place? Can we just lift our voices in this place? Because of who God is. <laughs> 